Welcome to the season one finale of Trail Break Radio. I'm David Page and I'm here with Emily Scott, wrapping up a season of public lands policy discussions from the 10th Biennial Grassroots Advocacy Conference, sponsored by REI, the Mighty Arrow Family Foundation, and Outdoor Alliance. This week, we are sponsored by Denali Arts Council. Today's episode is a special one, marking the end of a fun journey we've shared throughout this season. For our season finale, we have a conversation that encapsulates the heart of the winter backcountry experience, stewarding winter. Our question is this, with more and more of us out there, how can we improve partnerships with land managers and other users to educate the growing number of winter recreationists and help reduce our collective impact on the lands where we recreate. Our panelists today, Shane Tulp, Ann Gaspar, and Tyler Ray, bring a wealth of experience and insights from different corners of the winter recreation landscape. That's kind of how it has to work, right? For us to continue to have uh, generational places to recreate, we have to come together. Tyler is the founder of Backyard Concept, co-founder of Granite Backcountry Alliance, as well as co-founder with us at Winter Wildlands of the Ski Kind brand. Anne is a former U.S. Forest Service wilderness ranger and now the program manager for Vail Pass Winter Recreation Area. In many ways, ground zero for what a crazy popular multi-use winter recreation zone looks like and where a lot of our most popular zones may be headed. Shane works with the U.S. Forest Service as well and is a Great American Outdoors Act coordinator. He now serves as a snow ranger for Colorado Mountain Club on Red Mountain Pass. We'll talk about the importance of on-the-ground collaboration, the evolving landscape of winter sports, and the crucial role of land management in ensuring our snowy playgrounds remain both accessible and sustainable. So grab your gear and stay tuned for the adventure that lies ahead. Listen while you're doing a puzzle, building a fire, picking out groceries, or simply savoring the moments of season one's finale. for hanging in here this is the the hardcore crew going all the way to the end we should have some kind of point system or something so you can redeem for prizes afterwards this is i I think this is ends up being we didn't necessarily plan it this way but i think it ends up being kind of an appropriate panel to round us all out with all the sort of cans of worms that we've opened up and and um we're going to talk just about stewardship on the level of like how do we as recreationists uh, in these landscapes that we love at the ground level, at the local level, how can we improve the stewardship amongst our, our fellow recreationists? Um, when, you know, as we've talked about, there isn't necessarily a forest service presence out on the ground there, you know, other than like radical instances where law enforcement needs to be called, there isn't necessarily that guidance out there. So we're going to talk about some different scenarios and some different landscapes for how we can sort of better, how we can improve the way that we uh, recreate in a responsible fashion. Um, so just to kick it off the way we've been doing it, we'll go ahead and I'll let you guys just do a quick introduction, and then I'll throw out some questions. We'll start with Tyler. Hey, everyone. Um, nice to see all of you here. And uh, David and Winter Island staff, thanks for having us. Um, I remember my first conference in 2017, and it lit the fire. And so um, I'm feeling the same vibe here over this past few days, so uh, uh, appreciate being a part of it. I'm Tyler Ray, founder and director of Granite Backcountry Alliance, based in North Conway, New Hampshire. Um, Granite Backcountry um, is uh, was founded in 2016. Um, I was uh, on the board for several years, and then I stepped off and um, created my own company, Backyard Concept. Um, and now Backyard Concept manages Granite Backcountry. And this just setting the stage for what we're going to talk about a little bit later. And so that's sort of an, an important point, um, at least from my perspective. And um, and so what we do at Backyard Concept is a, it's a professional business and advocacy firm specializing in legal consulting events and nonprofit management. And so Grant Backer is one of our, one of our prized clients. Uh, and what I, what I want to go through just briefly is um, we develop human-powered terrain for backcountry skiing in a variety of land with a variety of landowner partnerships and low impact sustainable methodology working with uh, landowner groups from the federal the white mountain national forest the state 
several municipalities, land trusts, and also private landowners. So when I call that the big five and uh, diversifies our holdings and um, creates a different perspective as we uh, develop this terrain. Now, a lot of what we do is very different than the, the, most folks in the room, pretty much all of you, um, except for maybe Matt from Catamount. And um, so we have, we've had a different set of issues. And um, so my chat today, as, I, as we go forward, is I want to call it like the complete game. And this is partly because uh, I've reached a new stage in my parental life which is all about organized sports. So now I think of things in organized sports. So I'm going to talk about the offense, offensive strategy, and then I'll turn to the defensive strategy, which comes to the complete game at the end. And so just briefly, I'll just, I'll just say just a couple of things that we've developed over the last seven years. Um, we've developed over 50,000 feet of ver vertical of terrain, um, and that's in 15 different locations across 12 different communities, spanning from western New Hampshire to western Maine, 120 miles as the crow flies. We have, um, we've had over 30,000 hours of volunteer time invested into our projects with a 100-person manage volunteer management team, uh, which includes the 30 Sawyers, 30 pack leaders, um, a New Hampshire backcountry ski patrol, a board of directors, um, and um, our ski kind ambassadors. And that's really where we're going to end up today when we talk about the defensive strategy. Um, but I just wanted to lay, set the stage and lay the land for what we do. Um, and I'll leave it at that. Hey, everyone. Happy to see you all. My fitness tracker yesterday around this time recorded me as being asleep. So, because um, <laughs> I was uh, full and very relaxed. So, um, hopefully, you guys aren't asleep now. Um, one other thing, we've had a, you know, quite a few Forest Service folks up here the last few days, and I haven't seen any pickle suits, so I decided to bust mine out. Yeah, the pickle suit. <laughs> We're getting serious here. Hello, my name is Ann Gaspar. Um, I can give a quick, I'll just give you a little background about myself. Um, from South Dakota, went to school in Wyoming. I got my first job with the Forest Service in 2005 in Dillon, Colorado, on the White River National Forest, which, as the crow flies, is just yonder, you know, like 80 miles as, like, kitty corner. Um, and it essentially changed my life when I realized I could have a job that I just love so much. Since that, after that, I went back to school, got my master's, and international stu uh, environmental studies, thought I wanted to work for <clears throat> NGOs internationally, went to the Peace Corps, you know, um, was exposed to some pretty big organizational names that were a little jaded, understood the difficulties with that, um, and then decided maybe I would stick to Forest Service. So I got, I came back and I was seasonal for 13 years. I had the um, privilege of working across a lot of different program areas, hydrology, timber, um, backcountry winter ranger. I was able to participate in a Canada Lynx study, um, wilderness ranger. And eventually I kind of fell into trails and recreation. Um, I got my first permanent job in Idaho as the one of the river and wilderness managers on the Frank Church uh, River of No Return Wilderness, and then eventually made my back way back to Colorado, and am now the uh, Vail Pass Winter Recreation uh, Lead uh, Manager, essentially. Um, I can go into what the program is now, or I can pass it on. Now, we'll, we'll let Shane introduce himself, and then I'll come right back to you. Hi, um, I am Shane Tulp, and I currently uh, work for the U.S. Forest Service as well as a Great American Outdoors Act coordinator, but um, the reason I'm on this panel is I was a snow ranger for Colorado Mountain Club on the western slope of Colorado, um, Red Mountain Pass area, Grand Mesa, and the Ugum Padre um, for the past two years. Thanks. So right back to you, Anne. I, a, I appreciate you wearing the uniform, um, and, and I, I realized... 
I kind of unfairly put the context out there that we were going to talk about landscapes that don't have a forest service presence. And in fact, you run a program where there is really actually a forest service presence. And that's to me kind of exciting. I always wax nostalgic and it may just be that I've made up these memories of friendly rangers who wandered around in the woods and told people how to do, you know, what not to burn and what to burn and how to do it. Um, and over time I felt like that's gone away. Um, but in your case, you're actually out there managing recreation in the winter. And so tell us about your program. Tell us how the Vail Pass situation evolved and to what it is today. Cool. Um, so it is a very unique program. Uh, Vail Pass Winter Recreation Area, it is that. It's a recreation area and designated as so in the winter months. Um, it's 55,000 acres. It's, again, just for some context, located right off the interstate between Copper Mountain and Vail Mountain. It's a, a backcountry winter recreation area, meaning that we have all of the recreation you can imagine that's um, unsupported by lift access. So we have the snowmobile and motorized community, which now you know encompasses more than just snowmobiles. We have backcountry skiers. Um, we have hut users. So we have um, three different hut associations in Vail Pass, Shrine Mountain Huts, Summit Huts Association, 10th Mountain um, Huts. So, you know, kind of a small network of the greater network within the area. Um, and then we have hybrid use, which is a lot of Mo, you know, snowmobiles pulling skiers around to ski awesome backcountry terrain. Um, and what makes this area so special is that it's all together and it's a multi-use area. You know, where a lot of examples of areas, it'll be, you know, one side of the road's motorized and the other side is non-motorized because it's so much easier to manage that way. Um, because of the multi-use nature of the area, you know, that absolutely presents a challenge in managing those boundaries and those user groups and a lot of, um, yeah, conflicts within those user groups. Um, oh yeah, one thing I forgot to mention was we have a slew of other outfitter, like permittees up there. So. We have, you know, about 10 different schools that do Abbey classes up there. We have the powder guides that do guided cat skiing, um, private guides for cross country and backcountry skiing. Um, what else? I have some notes here. But that's kind of the area in a nutshell. Um, I can go into the history now or wait. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, the, the area itself has a pretty long history. It, it dates back into the 90s, um, really the late 80s, uh, or you could even say the early 80s when the Forest Service decided to um, start permitting a lot of these um, permittees that I just mentioned, like the powder cats, the hut, like that's when they started building the huts, um, the guided skiing, you know, and and so there was, it kind of accommodated uh, in the late 80s with a lot of um, confusion on who should be where, uh, where the boundaries actually should be for motorized, non-motorized. And then CDOT complaining about parking and plowing and people parking on the interstate. Um, so... In the, it started early 90s, um, basically the Forest Service uh, addressed these stakeholders and said, we need to sit down, come together and figure something out. You know, kind of something Carmela uh, alluded to last night. It's like, we need to get together and figure out what we're doing here. Um, so that was the start of the Vail Pass Task Force. Essentially a stakeholder group with these permittees, but in addition to them, some representatives of non-motorized and motorized users. You know, um, they got to the table, they started figuring, you know, very, 
begrudgingly and very heated uh, meetings, as I've heard anyway, um, and what I can tell from some of the, the stuff I've read to give you a history of the program. Um, they, they were able to kind of make some compromises and come up with a map that was reflective of certain boundaries and they're like, okay, how are we gonna plow? What are we gonna, where are people gonna park? How are we gonna monitor these boundaries? And it's like, okay, we need people out there. They had a, they were able to recruit quite a few volunteer, like members of the public to help with management of the area. The forest service was involved. They were, I mean, really in the beginning involved as more of a mediator. Um, you know, I think it was more due to just lack of capacity that there weren't more people on the ground to begin with from the Forest Service. But so it essentially came from the task force, um, uh, the first iteration of a map that kind of delineates these different areas. Within the areas, we've got motorized areas, um, designated hybrid terrain, and then non-motorized areas. Um, so that's kind of the beginning of it. Um, let's see. That, you know, year after year, they there was three iterations of the map. This is the third, as you can see in that, um, that was proposed in the last travel management plan. I mean, and before that for the forest management plan. So it became very official back in like 96. Um, they were able to do a fee demonstration starting in 96, or sorry, 98, to start collecting fees up there to help manage the area better. Um, you know, 55,000 acres, no, not a lot of signage, not a lot of coverage. Um, it was, there was still a lot of contentious pieces be, between these user groups up there. Um, and so one of the ways to mitigate that was the, the um, the fees and getting some coverage from the Forest Service up there. Can I interject a question? Sure. Do you have a sense on an average weekend in the winter how many users are Absolutely. coming into this area? Yes, sorry. Um, big picture, White River National Forest, one of the most heavily used forests in the country. We get more visitors than Yosemite, um, Yellow, or sorry, Grand Canyon, Yellowstone, and um, sorry, Rocky Mountain combined. The, this area itself, we see about 60,000 users every winter. Um, some of the data back in 1996, when they was really started monitoring, uh, I think I had like 12,000 visitors. So we're, we, we range between like 58, 60,000 visitors. We're kind of self-limiting because our parking that's essentially our capacity. Our parking lot is like, we can't have more than the parking lot will hold. The parking lot is our capacity. You know, kind of back to that discussion we had uh, um, yesterday about shuttling and how that uh, presents challenge of, challenges of increased capacity. But so we see about 60,000 people a year, or sorry, a winter. 60,000 people a winter. So are we talking 5,000 on a super busy weekend? Um, no, I think, I think it's more of like around 3000 on a big, busy weekend, you know, and that, that includes people coming to the trailhead as well as, you know, people going to the huts, people doing the guided skiing, like all the permit T, um, users. So it's a really busy place. 3000 people, 55,000 acres. And you use the word coverage. And by that, I'm, oh. I guess you mean how many people you have to cover those 55,000 acres. Yep. And so, sorry, I might be jumping around here. Um, we, so the program is quite robust the, now. Um, you know, it went from volunteers to paid rangers to a combination of both. Um, and now we have seven day staffing and two crews of four people. You know, we put out probably, we put over a thousand signs up every winter on the snow signs that we put up and take down. Wow. Okay, thank you. Big overview. Um, so I'll pivot to you, Shane. Um, if you could just 
talk about sort of the uh, development of the history of the evolution of the uh, Colorado Mountain Club Snow Rangers program. Why, why did it get started and what were you guys up to? Yeah, so the Colorado Mountain Club Snow Ranger program um, is a partnership with the U.S. Forest Service um, directly related. I basically had Forest Service supervisors throughout it. Um, it started, I've been doing it for two years, but it started, I believe, four or five years ago, um, pre-COVID. Um, and it started on the Array Ranger District, mostly for Red Mountain Pass, when they were seeing more use um, on a pass that was historically, um, I guess, a little bit more local. Um, I hesitate to say that because um, obviously there's tourism and stuff. But it's in between Uray, Colorado, and Silverton, Colorado, um, two pretty hard to get to places. And it's on Red Mountain Pass, which is the Million Dollar Highway, which is dubbed as one of the most dangerous highways in the world. And um, so I think there's a lot of factors. It's location. Um, the highway itself that have limited the amount of use it's gotten. Um, but they were seeing an uptick in visitor use um, four or five years ago. So CMC and the Forest Service came up with a partnership to hire, at that point it was two snow rangers, um, to work on Red Mountain Pass. Um, and basically just start seeing what was going on on the ground there. Um, the snow rangers were primarily um, human powered, but sometimes they would be out on snowmobiles um, as well. Um, and then that program, I think, started to evolve. And they, last year was the first year that they hired three snow rangers. And they also expanded their program to work on the Grand Mesa as well and with the Grand Valley Ranger District, um, which is really a different user type. A lot of snowmobilers, cross-country skiers, as opposed to the um, backcountry skiers you see on Red Mountain Pass. Um, but really, uh, the Snow Ranger job is to figure out what's going on the ground, going on on the ground, educating people, and um, just listening. Because um, unlike Vail Pass, um, it may be going that way, um, but unlike Vail Pass, it really hasn't seen the user conflict um, until recently. Um, so yeah, that's kind of history. Nice. And What's that agreement look like between Colorado Mountain Club and the Forest Service? How's the sort of pay structure and are the snow rangers are an employee of? Yeah, so the snow rangers are on CMC payroll, um, but I would report to a Forest Service supervisor in the mornings and would actually use the CMC RIMS app that we talked about earlier to collect data. Um, so uh, really, um, I, I can't talk much to the pay structure. Sure, no, um, that's Because that's not really my wheelhouse. I'm more field going. But um, the definitely very like intertwined. I would say my position probably wasn't much different than a Vail Pass Snow Ranger that works directly for the Forest Service. And you were driving a Forest Service truck and a Forest Service snowmobile? Yeah, correct. Yep. Got Forest it. Service equipment. Yep. And they've actually hired a Forest Service Snow Ranger on the Uray Ranger District this year. Um, as a result of um, thinking they needed that. Nice. So uh, just last thing, and then I'll pivot to Tyler. You said that you're starting to see conflicts. What do those look like, and how do snow rangers mitigate? I mean, you're, you're obviously not in an enforcement capacity. Yeah, that's true. Um, most, uh, well, all education. Um, conflicts we're seeing on Red Mountain Pass, um, I would say have a lot to do with newer equipment. Um, Red Mountain Pass is pretty inaccessible to probably older snowmobiles, um, but newer snowmobiles can go um, more places, and also timber sleds as well are um, creating quite a lot of conflict. Um, and that's something you hear about, and um, I don't know, like people will say, oh, there's conflict, there's a lot of timber sleds up there, there's a lot of snowmobiles up there, and data collection is good and all, but having somebody out there that can actually see that that's happening and see not only that it's happening, that it's also a problem, I think is huge. Cause I would be out there skiing Red Mountain Pass for work and you would have a circle of timber sleds surrounding you basically uh, ski, like surrounding areas that historically have not seen motorized equipment. Um, 
and Red Mountain Pass doesn't really have um, those zones that are restricted uh, at this point. And, and just for the sake of uh, clarity, does everybody know what a timber sled is? Could you, could you just describe a timber sled for us? Because I, yeah. I heard them referenced as snow bikes earlier. Yeah, they're also called snow bikes. I think timber sled's a brand. But um, timber sled is a converted dirt bike to have tracks that can basically go anywhere that a human can. Yeah. Got it. Okay, thanks. So uh, over to you, Tyler. Talk about sort of the evolution of your program and, and how'd you get from offense to defense and toward a whole game? Yeah. Um, part one, offense. Um, sorry. So um, I'll just start by saying the vision for Grand Backcountry, like many things, they started somewhat selfishly. Um, New England, if those of you who are familiar with the terrain, it's was heavily deforest, deforested in the early 1900s, obliterated, if you could use that term as well. And so what we're dealing with is second growth uh, forest significant, with significant tree density. So that's like a common phrase I like to use is that we have a tree density problem. If you want to go skiing, uh, you're probably going to cut it. Uh, and so the vision was we do have high alpine terrain, whether you believe it or not, the Mount Washington, the presidentials in the White Mountains, and it's pretty sweet. There's lifetimes of turns up there. Uh, that's all well and good, but it is a high alpine terrain, and we had no below tree line network of skiing. So you were essentially forced into the, the avalanche terrain, um, regardless of weather, and Tuckerman Ravine is part of that. I'm sure many of you have heard of that. So many folks, their first experience with backcountry skiing was on a 50-degree face, which typically ended in a ragdoll, you know, down for many. And uh, that's not the introduction that we that we really want. So that was kind of the, the original vision. So we, we, we framed up the problem and really it was terrain scarcity, right? We had a terrain scarcity issue, tree density problem, as I mentioned. A lot of traffic. I mean, uh, you know, as we all know, it, there's just been this surge and it's an endless surge. You know, we have uh, most backcountry skiers come from the Alpine environment and um, whatever the statistics you were referencing this morning, um, it's an endless pool, right? So they keep coming in, Christmas happens, everyone gets their new kit. So, so we had a mix of veterans and then newcomers. Um, and so traffic was an issue. And, um, and then the third, the third uh, issue is that we needed to change the game. Right? We needed to be a disruptor in the nonprofit sector. And what I mean by that is because the tree density problem, we had a significant illegal and unauthorized cutting problem. So folks would go out at night with like the ski mask and the headlamp and the saws and cut their lines. And this is like became acceptable behavior, not only from a user side, but from the national force side as well, because it was sort of this, um, you know, ignorance uh, that, oh, I didn't see it, you know. And, and also it was a problem because the policymakers and the land managers didn't want to deal with backcountry skiers. And backcountry skiers never mobilized together to be able to come up with terrain op opportunities. And so the folks that sat at the table were not backcountry skiers and not in favor of it. And that was, that was what led to, you know, three, three, three four decades of, of illegal cutting. So we wanted to do it in a different way. We wanted to do it above board and um, come up with um, agreements and work with land managers so that these areas that we're creating, the terrain creation would be permanent. So our strategy for action was we had to get people behind us, right? We had to get, rally the troops, join the movement was our call. Um, in New Hampshire, you know, it's our mottos live, live free or die. So ski free or die, you know, this is the beginning, Granite Land, we're, we're, we're developing this thing, you know? And we're a mix of Maine and New Hampshire. So, you know, Maine vacation land uh, and look for your dive. So we had Granite Land just kind of made sense. And um, it's this, this uh, glade country that we're trying to develop. So, you know, having a robust online presence, people needed to know who we were, right? Because we needed support. So we had to be out there, be out in front. Uh, we had a lot of events from the Backcountry Film Fest, which we used as a tool to go into different communities. Um, and that became a great, it's, we still use it. We have several uh, each year. They've grown and grown and grown. Last year, we had maybe 1,500 people at the State Theater in Portland and nearly a sellout. And we've, we've been really able to dial that in. So it brings us this awareness. 
um, and vibe, you know, because really what it comes down to is that we needed to build, and I said, as I said, mobilize our community, right? And that's one of the things that we talk, I've heard over, over the past few days. And I think that, you know, the DNA of, of New England is community, right? And that's how it all sort of began. And, and we're, we're, I think a lot of times taking cultural cues is important in what you're, in what you're doing because what you're doing needs to reflect, you know, where you are. Um, so establishing the, um, the part, so mobilize was really important. The second thing was establishing partnerships. We own basically like nothing, right? We own some loppers and some pole saws and you know, things like that, but otherwise we don't own anything. So how do we get access to land? Um, how do we, uh, how do we run these events? So everything was a partnership from our relationship with the white mountain national forest, um, to the brands that we work with that give us product that we then convert into dollars. Um, I do call it legal money laundering. So many of you are probably aware of it, online auctions, whatever. It's like, how do we make, how do we turn this stuff into dollars? And so that's how we were able to, to work on the funding side. We also had to engage our user base uh, through education and safety and really put forth a, um, a mantra of, hey, look, this is your responsibility to come out and be a part of this. You know, although we're, we, we, we position ourselves as a, a skiing nonprofit, at the end of the day, we're like a land developer and a steward. And so the fall is our real season where we're doing work and we're in the woods, like literally thinning out the willy wax and in a low impact way, low impactful way that uh, follows forest methodology and, and so forth and sustainable methods. Um, but, you know, it was like the glades don't cut themselves. And, you know, we had to get people out. And we get people out in the woods. We have a big glade day. And, um, you know, we'd have, we'd have beer sponsors. We'd have, like, chafer dishes with these nice meals, like, in the middle of the woods. You know, we made it like a little party, you know, afterwards. And it's over, like, seven years now. It's like people just look forward to it. It's like people want to be there. And it creates this engagement with the land that not only is it easy in some ways because it's stoke season, right? Everyone wants to think about the best winter they're ever going to have is about to happen. They're going to ski the deepest powder and they have this, they're developing this terrain and it's a unique opportunity to be a part of history when you don't even realize you are part of it, right? It's like, imagine if you're part of all these hiking trails that were developed in the thirties and twenties or wherever. So, um, so we've really developed this self-sufficiency with our user base, um, everything from, um, that engagement, you know, because they're going to return year after year. They're going to respect the land in a different way than they otherwise would. Because a lot of folks are coming from away, and then there's a mixture of locals. But many come from away, and it's important to have them respect where we are and the culture, cultural norms that we abide by. And then finally, the, the, the fourth strategy for action was stewardship. And this is where I'll just say, um, should I move to part two? Defense. OK, defense. So. The pandemic, right? Pandemic strikes. Um, and, you know, there's been this, up to that point, there's been this increase in backcountry skiers, like I mentioned. Trailhead crowds are, you know, they're growing. We we're in neighborhoods. We have a lot of our glade zones are in neighborhoods. And, you know, there's, they're, they're jeopardized immediately when, like, like, you can't park on the street. That's like someone's driveway or um, noise, speeding, all these things. And then you throw in the pandemic and we're like, we need to do something. Resorts closed, uphillers, you know, went to those resorts like, you know, rats in a city, no respect of property lines. And, and it was like, wow, um, coming into the next year, it's like, we got to do something because if we don't, they're going to they're gonna come down to the GBA glades, right? And we're going we're gonna to lose what we've built. So how do we get, what's the touch point, the education piece? We first made a significant effort to develop an uphill pass, very similar to like the Indy Pass, you know, working with resorts, developing skin tracks and whatever, having this whole program. I immediately learned that just, <laughs> resorts don't love uphillers and they don't necessarily want to talk to us. Even when you're talking their language and discussing revenue, uphilling is just, you know, it's a nuisance. So I realized that was a entirely, a, a program that was entirely too large and and intensive to go down that road. So that's when we, we developed Ski Kind. And I turned to David and said, Ski Kind, that's it. And he and I, we said, let's go. And we developed it. Um, and it is what it is. And that's why I have this personal attachment to it. Um, but it was a code of conduct that we could now put into place to say, this is the framework 
that we're working with, our etiquette, our um, user base. Uh, it's got it draws from leave no trace. It draws from being a good neighbor. It's like it's pretty simple stuff. Um, and so let's use it. And we developed a um, so we so we developed a ambassador program based around it, which you know we have someone in our lot very much like Snow Ranger. You know, at least the Snow Rangers in our area. Where hey, how you doing today? You know, where where are you headed? Uh, you know, but, you know, just asking questions. You need advice? Hey, afterwards, uh, you should check out. You know, um, check out uh, Ledge Brewery. You know, that's they support us a lot. Um, that kind of thing. All of the brands and the businesses, local businesses that support us, we tell them to go visit them. And maps, stickers, give out stuff. You know, so we all these different parking lots uh, that are heavily traveled. We would manage them, and through that volunteer network that I talked about, and. Um, you know, we, we, we give them, uh, yep, so up here we have um, these two young ladies in front of one of our kiosks. This is on National Forest property. The parking lot is um, actually a land trust. The story there with the National Forest is they gave us the terrain, 500 acres, but they didn't have access. It was landlocked. So we had to work with a uh, land trust, raise $100,000, buy the property, and that's what it is. And then we have these two jackets made by a New Hampshire brand, Terra Seags. We're very much about promoting our own um, industry within where we are. Um, and that, um, it, you know, then we, we, then we have like Yeti coolers or whatever. We give that put prize packages, you know, lottery type stuff. Just, you know, really get people excited. So we've really developed that program. We've integrated it into our Glade days. And Ski Kinds has been an, such an integral part of what we're doing. And it, it really gives us that stewardship angle that um, is exciting because uh, that really goes to the, the, the complete game, as I mentioned earlier. The offensive defense comes together. Nice. Thanks, Tyler. So I'm going to go back to you, Shane. I know you've moved on. You're doing something else, but you still have a handle on the program, and it sounds like it's growing. Maybe you can just speak to what, what the future looks like to you, like what the challenges are that you anticipate. You say potentially more conflict. Are there other zones that CMC is looking into? Um, are there lessons like in, in hearing what Tyler's doing that you, you think CMC could do better? What's the future look like? Yeah, the future. I know there is talks about expanding the Snow Ranger program into more areas. Um, I know the Gunnison Ranger District was brought up um, and I think there's some others. I don't know specifics. Um, biggest challenges. Um, well, the program's pretty new. Um, so the program's still kind of learning on like the Vail Pass program. Honestly, probably could learn a lot from the Vail Pass program if um, communicated a little bit about some of your successes. Um, uh, talking about like detailed challenges though, Red Mountain Pass, um, it doesn't really have parking <laughs> at all. And a lot of skiers, uh, which is dangerous on a highway like that. Um, so a lot of what I did was collect parking lot data, but as you all know, the Forest Service and federal agencies require a lot of data to be willing to spend money uh, to do action, and that takes a long time. So continuing to collect that data and know what's going on. Um, the Grand Mesa does have quite a bit of parking, but they have conflict um, in other aspects. Um, yeah, there's ski areas on the Grand Mesa, um, cross-country ski areas, and then they butt right up to snowmobile zones. Um, and there's constant conflict around that. Um, in terms of learning from that, I think just understanding that that's happening, the Forest Service, it's relatively new that the Forest Service in that area really has had somebody on the ground saying what's happening. Data is great, but just like understanding like that day-to-day, -day, I think has been huge and will be huge in the future. Nice. So in, in the interest of some of the threads through most of these conversations about reaching out to other user groups, um, being more inclusive, sort of big tent, what's the reception been on the ground? Or do you feel like one, do you feel like skiers appreciate you there and snowmobilers don't, or are snowmobilers pretty receptive to having someone out there? What's, what's the vibe? The reception, I would say there's less reception than there is people being stuck in their ways. <laughs> um, it's more, uh, a lot of what I dealt with was people coming up to me and telling me what was wrong. Um, uh, reception is um, difficult because everybody has their own agenda, I think, and especially on 
areas like this where there hasn't been much presence, um, there's been kind of like a standard order of things and how they've gone. And now to see presence is, I think for a lot of people, uh, new and frightening in a way. Um, um, but that being said, there, there, there is some reception. Like sometimes people come up and be like, I'm so glad you're out here doing your thing, um, being out here, being in the face of things. But those are not the people that are making complaints or have an issue with things. Those are the people that are really out there just having a good time, <laughs> if yeah. that makes sense. No, yeah. it makes sense. So the people who have complaints or who come up to you and tell you what's wrong, what, what, what do they say is wrong? I think a lot of it goes, <laughs> there's a lot of complaints. Um, just about increased use, uh, which is, it's a really, it's not a hard conversation to have with somebody, but it's, it's a moot point. <laughs> um, and I think the interaction between snowmobilers and skiers is, especially on Red Mountain Pass, is a contentious issue. Red Mountain Pass, historically, is a backcountry skiing zone. A lot of locals feel strongly about that. Got it. Thank you. So, uh, back to you, Anne. Um, and again, kind of the same question, just looking forward and, and what challenges do you see moving forward and, and um, what would help improve the situation? Yeah, I, I guess I can start with maybe what is working, you know, because we're a fee area, we're able to provide coverage, provide maps, signage, patrolling, education, um, you know, it's been really effective. The task force is still meeting, you know, that's 30 years running. Um, compliance is really high. And, you know, um, like even CA, our Colorado Avalanche Institute, they have a trailhead program. They're up there educating uh, public on avalanche. So that's some of, the, some of the things that have come out of the program that have been really effective and have worked. Um, challenges, you know, um, seven-day staffing with skilled backcountry rangers um, who can ride snowmobiles. Like we luckily have some really amazing employees that are highly skilled and that can talk to the public and you know approach these very confrontational situations sometimes when it comes to compliance or snowmobile incursions. Um, you know that will always be a challenge just finding the right people for that but we're lucky enough to have a pretty robust uh, supply of those folks up where we live. Um, you know, uh, some of the newer things that we kind of alluded to are just the changes in technology. I mean, snowmobiles changed 20 years ago and they were able to go where they hadn't ever gone before, but today it's just a whole nother ball game. And with the timber sleds slash snow bikes, you know, that just adds another element of complexity. Um, in addition to that, we're seeing a lot of just obscure vehicles up there. Um, moon bikes, they're essentially e-bikes that are on tracks, you know, where they are motorized, they need to stay out of the non-motorized train. Um, I think there's just, it, it's a curve ball of like what's coming next. Um, we mentioned the e-snowboard. I haven't actually seen one. I've only heard someone referring to one being like, well, what about my e-snowboard? Can I take that down, you know, the non-motorized ski run? So, you know, just changes in technology that'll continue to be um, a challenge. You know, the uh, there's always uh, uh, disgruntled people up there who don't want to pay the fee. That'll always be an issue. Um, and then, but one of the things we're really dealing with, well, we've been... It's not a new issue, but it's becoming more predominant is really just seeing a lot of folks that aren't prepared to be outside in the mountains in the winter. Um, the, a lot of rental companies, and not to just pinpoint rental companies, but it seems to be a pattern. Um, we're getting, they've essentially found a loophole to operate without a special use permit. They rent out truck, trailer, snowmobile from private land they, you know, we have like three main access points on our um, district specifically. They show up, they pay the fee, they use the area, but oftentimes they're in loafers, you know, and then they drive off the track and they get stuck. And 
because these companies aren't permitted, they're not necessarily supposed to be up there providing a service, so they call search and rescue, which you know kind of uh, stresses that resource for when there is a real emergency. Um, and again, this isn't anything new, it's just like there's just more and more companies doing this, more and more people, and it is something we're trying to address. And it's not that we're against permitting these companies, but if we do, what stops 10 more companies from popping up? And why do we, we reward these companies that, you know, haven't been doing a particularly good job at supplying their clients or educating their clients with the, what they need to be safe out there with a permit? And if they have a permit and they're not, you know, following within the parameters of the permit and uh, like taking, we take the permit away, they just go back to doing what they're doing. So anyway, there's not a, we just don't really have a good solution other than education right now. Um, so those are some of the challenges we we're facing. Great, thanks. Okay, so Tyler, a quick last touch, a minute or two um, on maybe maybe just pull back out of the local and talk about like what's the national movement how does ski kind fit into it what what uh what do we do to get every you you mentioned it before this idea of trying to get everybody on the same page with with messaging can we do that you think well i look around and i think absolutely i mean we're, we're all at the end of the day doing very similar things when you really boil it down and you know when you have an organization like winter wildlands um, that is the sort of tent, big tent, the umbrella company, and they're offering resources. I think we all should pull together to utilize those, to tap into them, because it's the user base that we're trying to educate and standardize. And I don't want those words to sound like, uh, you know, to not fit what, who we are, but that's kind of how it has to work. Right, for us to continue to have uh, generational places to recreate, we have to come together. And the collaboration is certainly a theme I've heard this weekend, and it's a theme that um, is incredibly, incredibly important. Things are very expensive these days. They're difficult to do. Someone mentioned earlier, collaboration is difficult. Yeah, it is. Um, it's really important to analyze what, what you're collaborating on and what the purpose is of what your, what your, what your piece is, right? So everyone needs to have a piece to contribute. Um, when you have this opportunity to have this educational piece and then incorporate and integrate it into your own community, I think that's really important, um, for backcountry skiing in general, um, to keep us, uh, to keep our seat at the table. Stewardship, um, resonates beyond our user group and it shows um, that we are acting um, cohesively, and I think that's really important. So I would certainly put a call to action to everyone here and your groups to utilize a tool like SkiKind because we all are, and we all can, and there's power in numbers, right? We don't necessarily know when we're going to need to dig deep and, and utilize our base, our nationwide base. Um, but you always got to expect the unexpected, and it's important to have those relationships before you need them, right? Um, and that's an important thing, that these relationships with the National Forest um, and the user groups and the story, all these great things, all these things that we're talking about are so important. Um, but let's, let's think about how we could do it together. And, and sometimes it's, it's, it's sitting right in front of us. It's hidden in plain sight, and uh, I think that's what's key kind of. So I'd suggest to everyone... Um, Let's let's work with Winter Lion Wildlands on how to improve it and if, if needed and um, how to integrate it and and get going. Immerse yourself in a community-driven haven of artistic expression with Denali Arts Council. At Denali Arts Council, they value diversity, artistry, and community, and are on a mission to create and nurture community-based opportunities for artistic expression. From captivating drama performances to the mesmerizing Greenlight Circus, their programs showcase the incredible talents of Susitna Valley, Alaska residents. Your support fuels their commitment to bringing art to life. If you're in the Susitna Valley, seize the opportunity to attend the local Backcountry Film Festival screening, volunteer, and witness the arts flourish in your community. Wherever you live, join them by visiting their website, donating, or becoming a member at DenaliArtsCouncil.org and follow them on Instagram at Denali Arts Council to let the artistic spirit of Denali Arts Council inspire you.
All right, thanks. So uh, we'll open it up to questions. Megan, maybe you could do the handoff. Thanks to everyone. My question is very simple. What's an e-snowboard? <laughs> and I, I want to say in the Bridger Teton, there's a debate about whether or not to allow e-mountain bikes on single track. You mentioning that particular technology freaks me out. Well, expect more of that to come. Anyway, I had to look it up online. It's essentially a snowboard with a hole in the back and a wheel with like, that kind of looks like a track. And it's just this electric wheel that propels the snowboard. Um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I appreciate you guys all up there. This, this, this has been really, really interesting. I don't try and stay awake here on the last one. This is, for me, the, one of the most exciting uh, panels we've had yet. So just looking back, I guess, Kurt, for uh, on Red Mountain Pass, like all the challenges that you've had. Um, and it sounds like the conflict is partly due because there are no barriers or distinctions. Is there any kind of movement in that particular area? that to, to start try to, to designate those because that's kind of in my in my mind the first point uh, I guess the starting point yeah it's a good question <laughs> when I first started two years ago I actually asked for a map <laughs> and it was hard for them to dig up for me there is a map with um, some sort of boundaries I don't know um, when it was made or um, the last time it was enforced or if it's ever been enforced. But the GMUG is coming up with a program that other people probably know more than me about, but they are developing over snow vehicle use maps. Um, and that's part of the long-term plan. I don't really know um, the, specific, the specifics though. But yes, the Grand Valley Ranger District actually does have an over snow vehicle use map. And that was, as a snow ranger, a very useful tool to be able to talk to people about, hand out, and educate with. Hillary, do you want to give a quick note on where, where those processes stand? Yeah, we actually touched on this briefly yesterday in the Sustainable Recreation Panel. So the uh, GMUG National Forests are just completing their forest plan revision um, in that they have mapped out a winter recreation opportunity spectrum. Um, when they finalize the forest plan, that map will become the basis of travel management planning, um, which will then dial in deeper into the areas that are suitable for motorized use to designate motorized use. And at the end of that process, there will be a map. Uh, similar, it's the same process that the Stanislaus uh, finished and is the reason they have a map. Anybody else? Yeah, go ahead, Marla. E-snowmobiles are also coming up. Hopefully sooner rather than later. So, you know, you talk about the difference of um, recreation types of opportunities, right? We've been seeing fat bikes become more popular. In all three of these zones, are you guys seeing fat bikes? And what are your thoughts on the progression of that? I mean, I can answer for Red Mountain Pass and the Grand Valley, basically Ranger District. Um, Red Mountain Pass, no. Um, I haven't seen a single bike. Um, and I don't know why. There is some places where I guess it is possible. Um, on Grand Valley, um, they have designated Nordic skiing areas that are managed by a Nordic council, and they do not allow fat bikes um, on them at all. But there is, there's one trail, and I've seen maybe three fat bikes in total. So I'm not sure why, but no. Really, really good question. Again, this is just comes back to the policy, keeping up with technology. They'll pass, we have 50 miles of groomed trail, it attracts fat bikes, but they are not allowed. The Forest Service Travel Management Plan, as it is now in our forest, doesn't even didn't even consider fat bikes because they didn't exist, and therefore they're technically not allowed on any winter trails, which our groomed routes are mostly on roads. So it makes it really confusing because people are like, well, this is a road, but it's actually not a road. It's a, considered a winter trail. And therefore, e-bikes or sorry, fat bikes aren't allowed. Um, and be, because we're up there, we enforce that. I think on the rest of the forest, it's pretty common to see um, fat bikes. Counties and towns are starting to allow you know allow them, and it blurs the line and makes it really confusing for people. And again, it's just that we haven't caught up to the technology to 
even consider fat bikes in use on our trails. So you had a question too, Anne? I have a question. <laughs> Do you know if you had to go through like a full NEPA process to get permission to cut this stuff out on national forest? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, if we were going through the full NEPA, we'd probably still be going through it. So the answer is no. When I mentioned at, at the outset that uh, I operate my, my own company, it's my background, my training is a, as a business attorney. And so I only say that because I have a deep interest in like taking a look at the forestry management plan and really digging in and asking questions. And, um, and so to answer your question, we basically, um, we used I can't remember what I can't remember the standard. We used the illegal activity that we discovered on the forest, and the need to protect the resource um, in a dispersed uh, trail activity, because a lot of what we're, backcountry skiing was not. It's an allowed skiing is an allowed use. It's not backcountry skiing is not an explicit is not explicitly allowed. So we had to work through that, and then working with the district. Ranger, it was it was to protect the resource and and it was, it was through a project memo um, that was based on dispersed trail use. That is how we I don't want to say circumvented the rule or the NEPA process, um, but we did. So it certainly seems like a template that I'm amazed that mountain bikers haven't seized on to normalize or standardized illegal trails that they've already built. Right. Yeah. And we've, we've, we had a number of illegal and part of that was was because our national force had experience with illegal trail mountain bike trails. Many were sanctioned, uh, you know, it's sort of like they can't beat them, join them. They don't want to promote that. But at the same time, there was such a significant use of backcountry skiing. This problem was only going to be exacerbated if they didn't jump in and begin to manage it. And that's part of it. I'm not sure if the Green Mountains were it was a different rationale, but that's how we were able to do it. Um, and um, yeah, I'll just jump in really quick back here. Sorry, this is Matt Williams, Catamount Trail. So uh, on the Green Mountains, we have gone through NEPA for managed backcountry ski zones and glades, and um, frequently now we're just in integrating them directly into the into the IRPs as they come up. Um, and so the the most recent projects have been approved that way. Matt, what's an IRP? Integrated resource resource project. Sorry, yeah. So sort of regional, you know, scale planning at the district level. I will say that we are we have other projects that are currently going through the NEPA project that are collaborative and with other activity groups. So, but this this was to put us on the map and to um, balance the activities uh, and that was to get it to get it authorized. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. Very interesting. Thanks for all your hard work. Thanks to everybody for hanging in there. And that wraps our very first season of the Winter Wildlands Lions podcast, Trailbreak Radio. We've covered a lot of ground from athlete advocacy to wildlife resilience. And now I think we can say we are all better, more informed, empowered, and inspired stewards of winter and the places we love. If you haven't listened to all the conversations yet, check them out now. Thanks to all of our speakers across our grassroots network. It's been a solid foray toward a deeper understanding of the delicate balance between our collective passion for winter recreation and the need and ability to preserve these wild landscapes. Before we sign off, we want to express our gratitude for you, our listeners. Your support and engagement means the world to us. We hope you've been enjoying Trailbreak Radio as much as David and I have enjoyed starting it and bringing it to you. If you're interested in a topic for season two of Trailbreak Radio or want to share your favorite moment from season one, please leave us a podcast review or email us at info at winterwildlands.org. Also, once again, a huge thanks to all of our Backcountry Partner sponsors, Dan Bailey's Outdoor Company, San Juan Huts, Alpine Quest Sports, Tahoe Mountain Sports, Backcountry Babes, Alaska Guide Collective, wildlife for tomorrow as well as the outdoor alliance the mighty arrow family foundation and rei for making this season possible this week's episode was sponsored by denali arts council we couldn't have done it without tess goodwin our producer and editor and if you've been loving our theme song don't forget to check out rattlesnake preachers on instagram while you wait for the next trail break radio episode and there are likely to be some bonus episodes coming soon. Visit winterwildlands.org to check out our other content, such as our stash blog or Trailbreak magazine. 
Any donation you make through our website makes you a member and goes directly to supporting our policy and education efforts. And we'll keep Trailbreak Radio coming into your podcast feeds. For now, stay warm, stay wild, and keep breaking trails. And of course, let it snow. 